If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 42 for our Old Testament Scripture reading. This will also be our sermon text this morning. For the next four weeks, we will look at four passages in Isaiah that are that give us a portrait of the Messiah as one who is called the servant of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 42, and we'll read verses 1 to 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, and that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, for our New Testament Scripture reading. We will find that Matthew quotes from this passage quite extensively. In fact, it is the oldest, it is the longest Old Testament citation in the Gospel of Matthew. And here he uses it to characterize the nature of Christ's ministry on earth. We'll begin reading in verse 9. Uh, read Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. Jesus went on from there, and he entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they asked him this, that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, just like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. And he did this to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, 
my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Well, this is God's Word. Let's go before the Lord and ask that He help us to understand these things. My gracious God and Father, this morning we have but one request, uh, that we would see Jesus. And that knowing the heart of Christ towards us, that we would have and find the confidence needed to come with boldness to the throne of grace. That we might find grace in trouble and mercy when we have fallen. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, 10-15 years ago in my whole town, actually in my own neighborhood, there was a 7-year-old girl by the name of Summer Thompson who, uh, walking on her way home from school, had been abducted, was raped, and murdered uh, in a house just a few homes down from the home in which I grew up in. Made national headlines. It took nearly a week before the police could find her body that had been abandoned in a landfill in a different state. And during this time, a particular slogan was seen all over the news and social media as it called for justice for summer. The girl's body was found and in a brief time, the killer was caught. He confessed to the crime. He was found guilty of murder and gross and heinous crimes and is presently serving six consecutive life sentences for the deed that he had committed. Summer's own mother had taken funds that were given to her to purchase that killer's home where her daughter was murdered, where she had the home burned to the ground, and in its place was built a garden, where to this day, that garden is kept and maintained by volunteers in the community to this day. Her mom said she didn't even want uh, a remembrance that that man was, had once lived in that area. And so now there is this beautiful garden that exists where a home once stood, um, just a few houses down from where I grew up, uh, where children can now come and play. And it's a remembrance of this little girl. By earthly standards, you could say that justice was served. The criminal was caught. He confessed. He's serving time. There is no remembrance of him where that was once that crime was once committed. And yet, even though we would say earthly justice was done, to this day, there still stands a father and mother bereft of their baby girl. I think it reminds us that even on one's best days, earthly notions of justice still falls so short of what we wish it could truly accomplish. Earthly justice might convict condemn, and punish the transgressor. 
but it is not able to restore fully the things that have been lost in the midst of grief and devastation. How different we find the Bible's promise here, not of earthly justice, but of heavenly justice. A heavenly justice that is inaugurated by the servant of the Lord. Here we're kind of uh, being dropped into the middle of uh, Isaiah's prophecies. And for 39 chapters, Isaiah has decried against the problem of the radical injustice that has plagued not only Israel, but the world. Where civil leaders exploit the afflicted, where judges take bribes, where the powerful revel in bloodshed, where people trust in the futility of idols who are unable to save, where the nations, the Gentiles, have acted such, with such arrogance, with such ruthlessness, that they have invoked the curse of death, a curse that now covers the face of the earth. This is the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's preaching ministry. But from chapters 40 to 66, hope dawns. Here Isaiah sings of a servant sent from the Lord who will bring true justice to the nations. You know that here in our text this morning, three times the Lord speaks that His servant will bring justice to the peoples. You see that in verse 1. You see it again in verse 3. You see it again in verse 4. That is the mission of the servant. And yet the justice that the servant brings is not the justice that we'd expect. It is something that is far greater. And in bringing, bringing justice to the world, this servant reveals the heart of the Maker of heaven and earth. The Holy One of Israel. There's three things I'd like us to consider this morning. I'd like us to consider the man. In other words, who is this servant? Then I'd like us to consider the mission. Why is it that the servant has come? And then finally, the manner of the servant's ministry. What does his mission of justice look like as he comes in the midst of a dark and dying world? So three things, the man, the mission, and the manner. Here, over and against the feudal idols of Isaiah 41, these idols that are unable to save a world under the curse of death, the Lord now erupts with a joyous acclamation beginning in chapter 42. Behold my servant. Everyone, look here, is what he is saying. You see that at the end of chapter 41. He says, behold twice, behold the futility of the idols. Behold these worthless idols who are not able to do you a lick of good. Now chapter 42, behold something new. Someone who is actually able to save. The question, of course, is which servant is the Lord speaking of? If you were to do a word study and make your way reading through the book of Isaiah, you will find that there are a number of servants of the Lord, even in Isaiah's prophecies. Isaiah himself in chapter 20 is called a servant of the Lord. Uh, You also have King Hezekiah, his treasurer, Eliakim, the steward of the Davidic throne, that man who at the end of Isaiah 37 to 39 uh, plays that key role in negotiating and and trying to uh, help stop 
the, the Assyrian incursion as Eliakim now comes to Isaiah and pleads one servant to another uh, that Isaiah would intercede on behalf of the nation of Israel and that the Lord would bring relief. In chapter 45, the Lord even calls the pagan king Cyrus, his anointed one, his Messiah, who will liberate his servant Israel. Though Cyrus is called the Lord's servant, he does not know the Lord. In fact, Cyrus does not even worship him as God. Israel, as a nation, is called the Lord's servant. Yet in chapter 41 and 42, Israel is called a worm, blind and deaf and imprisoned. So which servant is the Lord talking about here at the beginning of chapter 42? You see, in contrast to all these other servants who fall so short of the mark, though they are assigned particular tasks and duties, some serving the Lord and not even knowing it, some serving the Lord and yet being the object of His displeasure. Here we have the Lord identifying a completely different servant, one in whom He fully delights. Behold my servant, the one with whom I am well pleased. The one with whom I pour out my spirit upon. Isn't it interesting that at Jesus' baptism, as the spirit falls down upon him, the Lord says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here we find that this is no unwitting servant. This is the great servant sent to redeem the sinful servant, sinful Israel from all of her sin and sorrow. Already now the descriptions of who this servant is attunes our ears to his own identity. Here is one who has been endued with and empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish this great messianic task. Here is the one you see in verse 7 as Isaiah continues to describe the character of the servant who will open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and who will liberate captive Israel. And in verse 6, this servant is one who will bring light not only to Israel, but light to the nations. In other words, what's so interesting when you read this chapter is Isaiah is already, or the Lord speaking through Isaiah, is already using language that harkens back to Isaiah chapter 7 to 11, where the Lord speaks of sending the Messiah, the branch of the Lord. Once the vineyard of the nation is hacked down to a stump, from that stump, from that stump of Jesse will arise a single branch. One who will sit on David's throne, chapter 7, born of a virgin, chapter 11, clothed in the Spirit and empowered to act with wisdom and justice. Chapter 9, one upon whose shoulders will rest the government of the heavenly kingdom who will bring light and liberty to the Gentiles and will bring justice to the face of the earth. You see here at the end of chapter 42, or at least in verses 8 and 9, the Lord in fact calls this mission the, the inauguration of a new covenant. These new things that are about to come to pass. The Lord says, I am here to declare it. In other words, the identity of the servant in chapter 42, and we'll see the servant pop up again in 49, 50, and 53, is the same servant that the Lord has already promised in Isaiah 7-11. to The Messiah. 
the Christ. Unlike these other servants, this servant is sent by God to bring God's saving purposes to fruition. Isaiah 45, Cyrus is called a servant of the Lord, but he's not called to bring salvation to the nations. He's called to liberate Israel from political captivity, but not spiritual captivity. Here is the great servant of all, one who was sent to deliver the world from the curse of death in the execution of holy justice. That leads us here to consider the mission of this servant. You notice, again, three times here, this servant's song attests to the mission of the servant. Look at verse 1. That one who is clothed in the Spirit will bring forth justice. Verse 3, he will bring forth justice faithfully, not half-heartedly. And verse 4, it will not simply be a localized establishment of justice, but it is a justice that will be established and cover the face of the whole earth even as the outer rims are waiting for such justice to be established. What does that justice look like, though? I once had a friend that I went to seminary with who had this, you could probably call it an obsession with watching old reruns of Law & Order SVU. Now, I love the old Law & Orders, but I've never been able to bring myself to watch Law & Order SVU because the crimes that committed, the, the special victims unit, are, are of such heinous nature that I just I can't bear to watch. And so I remember asking my friend, I said, why is it that you feel this kind of compulsive need to watch this show over and over again? She says, because I have to feel that justice has been served in this area because of things that had happened to her in her own past. She longed to see justice done. I think when we ask what does it mean to see justice served, our attention is immediately drawn towards what happens to the perpetrator. And surely Isaiah will speak of that particular facet of justice. In fact, that's how Isaiah's book ends. On that last day, the great messianic king, the servant of the Lord, will attend uh, with, with the host of angels. It will bring to uh, its completion the inauguration of a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, and will rule the world in justice and rain down in fiery judgment upon those who have failed to turn to Him for mercy. Here the Messiah at the end of Isaiah is spoken as the one who will call the whole human race to account for every transgression that is ever wrought in thought, word, and deed. That is a true facet of the Lord's justice. We might think of it as justice meted out against the predator, but the question we still have is what does true justice look like for the prey? for the victims, for the ones who are left wounded and afflicted and oppressed. Notice here where the accent falls in this particular passage where it talks about Christ's execution of justice, the servant of the Lord's execution of justice. Who becomes the recipient of this divine mission? You see that here in verse 3. As those who have been broken and bruised in a world full of sin and misery. In other words, Isaiah's concern here is the true justice that is brought to those who have been sinned against. 
to those who have been wounded. Again, note that the language that's used to describe this justice-fueled mission. It's a bruised reed, a smoking flax. You know, back home, I grew up in uh, North Florida, and, and just as you would make it to, uh, before you can make it to the Jacksonville Beach, you have to cross uh, over the marshlands. And as you drive over this bridge that takes you over the marsh, waving there in the breeze are these reeds that just kind of blow in the wind. They're probably the exact opposite of what we see here in the north with the Douglas firs and the redwoods down in California. You know, fat chance seeing uh, a light breeze knock over a redwood. But here you see even the slightest breeze, the, the weeds, the reeds waving in the wind. You could take a, a reed and you could snap it in half with just uh, one hand. They are weak and flimsy. Likewise, back home, every New Year's, me and some friends would go camping down in Juniper Springs in central Florida, and we'd spend four days around a campfire, and every night you would see the campfire dwindle where it's all that's left uh, by one or two o'clock in the morning are just these these few burning embers that could easily be snuffed out. Just a little cup of water could extinguish the final burning embers. And yet here, the object of the Messiah's mission is not towards the redwood, the blazing fire. It's toward the reed that is on the verge of being utterly broken. It is to, to the, the, the wick that's on its last leg, on the verge of being snuffed out. And yet, the Lord is very clear here that here is one who in his execution of justice will not break the reed that has been bruised. To the dimly burning candle, he will fan the fl- embers of the flame, so to speak. To, to mix the metaphor, he will uh, kind of bring health and restoration to it. He will, he will breathe new life into it. He will not come to snuff it out. Here in these images, Isaiah describes the kind of people for whom the servant has come to bring justice. The bruised reeds, those embers on the verge of being snuffed out. And here in verse 7, you notice Isaiah elaborates on the nature of such suffering. It's the blind and the enslaved, those who dwell in darkness. In other words, it's not only those who have suffered mercilessly at the hands of others, but he comes to all who suffer under the curse of death itself. That's why it's so significant when Jesus comes to heal the, the man who is born blind. Here's a man who it's not through any sin of his own. It's because he's been born into a, in a state of sin and misery. We all suffer the, the effects of the fall as people have sinned against us, but also just the natural devastation of living in a world where death continues to uh, at least to appear to reign. Everyone in here, prior, unless the Lord comes first, will die. Either through sickness or in tragedy. And here, the work of the servant is described as one who comes to deliver us from evil in all of its multifaceted varieties. As one who comes to heal the brokenhearted and to undo the curse that had befallen Adam's helpless race. And he comes to do so in tenderness and mercy. 
Here He comes to execute justice, but it is a justice that far exceeds anything that the earthly courts could ever offer, even on their best days. What court could ever say to the mother of Summer Thompson, what is done, what was done against your daughter is, is horrible. Now let's raise her from the dead. Earthly courts can't do that. And yet we see here the work of the servant of the Lord doing just that. Unraveling the curse of sin. Undoing death itself. The recipients of His justice might have life. Here, this servant comes not only to judge sin, but to restore a people from all the horrors that sin and death have inflicted on the world. Here, He comes to make them whole. And that tells us something of the manner of the Messiah's ministry. Here, the servant comes as the executor of divine justice. But again, it is a justice far better than we ever could have imagined. It is a justice that consists in tenderness and mercy that not only heals those who have been sinned against, but pardons the sinner himself, makes him whole, washes him clean. (coughs) Over and over again in the prophets, we speak of the Lord as it were bruising His people. In other words, making them uh, aware, cognizant of the sins that they have committed against God. That their own sin is described as a bruise. And yet, though it is sin, the Lord comes to heal them from their own sin. Here, again, we are confronted with a kingdom that has turned everything upside down and our own modern conceptions of true justice. We read elsewhere that here is a God whose goodness consists not in condemning sinners, but in instructing them. Psalm chapter 25. Here we are told of a God who does not change and on account of His immutable character, His people, sinners, though we are, are not consumed. Malachi chapter 3. Here, Isaiah himself tells us that God forgives. Why? Isaiah 55, God says, I forgive. Why? Because I am not like you. The human race doesn't know how to forgive. Because God says, because I'm not like you. Because I'm God and not man. Therefore, I pardon sin and iniquity. Certainly God will execute His vengeance in a fiery and holy justice on the last day. But it falls only on those who refuse the ministry of His servant. His servant who comes to anyone who would take Him. Even as John's Gospel makes clear who the servant is, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus says, Come to Me, all you. It's in Matthew's Gospel, who labor and are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. John chapter 6, Anyone who comes to the Son, the Son will not cast out. Here is a, the, the, the Lord's servant who in fact ends up being the Lord's son. Come to reveal perfectly the heart of the Father. To say, I will come and restore you of everything that has befallen you through the sin and its curse. Over and over again, the Bible tells us here is a God who is unlike the pagan gods of old, where wrath is, as it were, the Lord's strange work. And yet mercy is His natural disposition. As the Lord revealed Himself to Moses on top of Sinai, He could have said, the Lord, the Lord, always angry. Because the Lord truly is wrathful against sin in its entirety. He will not wink at sin. And yet the revelation of God's character and name is what the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. Not quick-tempered, but slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. 
with a love that is not stingy or depleted, but is superabounding. Here we find a God who is not simply lenient, but here's a God who is merciful. As Paul writes, here's a God who is rich in mercy, he tells the church of Ephesus. See, the Lord sends this servant, his servant of servants, to reveal his very heart. And in no uncertain terms, the New Testament reveals the identity of this long-awaited Isaianic servant, that it is Jesus of Nazareth. The longest Old Testament citation in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, where he quotes Isaiah 42, which highlights the nature of Christ's earthly ministry. As Jesus comes, not in brazen pomp seeking to be served, but as the one who has come to serve quietly and faithfully to give his life as a ransom for many. Here he comes just as the Lord has promised, healing the blind, the deaf, the mute, and the lame, yet making it clear that he has come to deal not only with the symptoms of sin, but to get at the root of the problem. So we are told of the story when Jesus heals the paralytic and then says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And he tells the Pharisees, now you tell me which one is easier to do. The Pharisees are left with a conundrum because Jesus has proved he has come to do both. He has come to deal with the effects of sin, but he has come to get at the root of sin as well. By bearing the wrath or the curse of sin, and the judgment of death that hangs over the human race. Here the great physician comes to get at the root of our disease by reckoning with sin and its curse. Because he is not only the servant of the Lord, he is in fact the Son of God. And we see that He comes not only to heal the sick and the frail, but He comes to deal tenderly with the doubting. Uh, Consider His relationship with doubting Thomas. Jesus could have easily castigated Thomas and berated him for his weak faith. And yet Jesus comes to him tenderly, even after the resurrection. Put your finger in the scars in my hand. He deals with his doubts with tenderness and care. You think of Peter, the man who says, Lord, I will never betray you. And yet, Peter makes the greatest blunder of them all. And yet the Lord, after the resurrection, comes with gentleness to restore Peter who had fallen. Truly, here is the friend of sinners, not only in Christ's earthly ministry, not only in his estate of humiliation, but also in his exaltation. How many of us struggle to think uh, that Christ continues to be as good as we read of him in the Gospels? We go, well, surely Christ was good on earth, but now that he's in heaven, he's so far from us. Does his heart remain unchanged? Yeah, the book of Hebrews describes, earthly, describes Christ's earthly ministry. It describes Christ's humiliation as His veritable boot camp. As His preparatory work for Him to enter into His state of exaltation that He might be made fit to be that sympathetic high priest even as He intercedes sleeplessly night and day for His own. Christ has ascended on high. Christ might be absent from us in body, but He is present with us by His Spirit. 
And the same Christ whose heart had come to reveal the heart of the Father still has that same heart disposed towards sinners as He comes to heal them in their weakness and doubts and humiliation. For now, having been made like us in every way with one exception, that of sin, Christ has been made fit to intercede on our behalf before the heavenly gates and in the heavenly temple before the Father above. Because Christ, having been tempted in every way, knows what it is like to suffer under the weight of temptation. Therefore, He can sympathize with us in all of our frailties and all of our doubts. Because He was obedient unto death, He now becomes the source of strength to give us the grace needed that we too might resist temptation and bear under these earthly sorrows. Because He had died and has now been raised, He now becomes the source of life who gives us those fresh and daily mercies for when we stumble and fall time and time again. As Hebrews 5 reminds us, though we are ignorant and wayward, He still comes to deal gently with us in our ignorance and waywardness. Here in Isaiah 42, we are given a picture of the heart of the servant. And the servant's heart and the servant's mission has been to come and reveal the heart of the Father. Just as Jesus tells doubting Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This is why we confess the Nicene Creed that Christ is of the same essence as the Father. Not simply of similar substance, somehow similar to the Father, but somehow different. No, Christ comes as the Son of the Father who perfectly reveals in all of His fullness the Father's own heart towards sinners. That we might have the confidence to draw near and come before the throne of grace with boldness. To be reminded that all who turn to Christ will not be turned away. To be reminded for weary souls that have been bruised and broken either by the sins of others assailed against you or by the wounding and bruising of your own consciences of prior sins that you have committed. Christ has come to make you whole. Just as He was on earth, so now He is in heaven. And so the promise of rest still stands. As our Savior Himself says, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That promise of rest still stands. The question we have is, will we turn to Jesus? Will we come to Him and know that the justice He gives is far better than anything we could have ever imagined? That here is the servant of the Lord, the Son of God, who has come to bind up the brokenhearted. Come to Jesus, and He will not turn you away. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we consider the character of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that You would give us the confidence to come near knowing that You will not turn us away that You will not passively, aggressively berate us in all of our sins and failures, but to whosoever will come, You will bind up that which has been broken and bring healing to that which has been bruised. 
And we ask for your healing grace to fall upon us now and heal us in body and soul. We ask in Christ's name.